This morning's reading is from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. That's Hebrews 12, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, nice to be with you again today. This is the second of two sessions we're going to spend in the book of Hebrews. The reason we're doing it, let me just repeat the reason, is because I'm studying the book of Hebrews at the moment. And the reason I'm studying the book of Hebrews at the moment is because the last few years have actually been, I think, quite difficult. Uh, I mentioned last week we have uh, things like uh, the pandemic. The second lockdown particularly I found difficult. Uh, We got COVID, we couldn't see the kids, and the family were away and we couldn't see them. And I couldn't do my job. Uh, I had to stop travelling and went to Zoom. Couldn't do that. Well, I did, we did it, but it was second, second best. And it was difficult. And I decided that uh, I needed to refocus. And the book of Hebrews is a great book for refocusing. So I started to read the book of Hebrews and study it. And then Michael phoned and said, well, I do a couple of messages. So you're getting two messages in the book of Hebrews. Last week, we reflected on one of the two main themes in the book, which is the centrality of Christ. It was the starting point for the author. It is so important for this man. He didn't, he didn't introduce it by saying, I, so-and-so, wrote this letter to these people. He just comes straight in on the person of Christ. And we looked at the first three verses last week when we came to... Um, when we came to, uh, uh, to start, sorry, I've just found the, what I was looking for. I think it wasn't here. Oh, wonderful. See, God has chosen to speak to us through his son. And in the opening verses, he highlights, if you remember, seven attributes of the son. That he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's the heir of all things. He's the provider for the purification of sins. He's exalted to an exceptional position of authority and honour. Why this emphasis? Why should the writer to the Hebrews emphasise these things? Well, it's because if we're going to hold unswervingly to the faith we profess, the writer says that we need to look at Jesus. That's why we spent the whole week last week looking at these first three verses. Why did he do that? Because the people he was writing to were facing persecution and an unsympathetic society that rejected their values. They were living as aliens in their own land. Now we face ridicule today, I I think it's fair to say. Look at the media and the press and some friends you might have. I think ridicule is part of the, the deal today. And uh, we face economic pressures like other people, though, and international conflict like other people, and a disruption to normal life. And the author identifies, through this letter from 
verse 3, or actually from verse chapter 2 onwards, five challenges that come our way to our faith. That we can be undermine our faith. And if you have a Bible, you might want to follow them. Now, just before I just go into those now, let me just lay a foundation of thinking for you. It's really important because we're going to look at challenges to faith. And it can be really discouraging. This can be a really discouraging time, okay? And I do appreciate that. And Linda's warned me not to be too discouraging. So I'm trying not to be. Let me just explain to you. We sang just before uh, 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 Eva, uh, Caris prayed for us. Sorry, Caris, got you wrong. Um, that uh, We sang, he will hold me fast. There is a very real truth that Jesus in chapter 12 of Hebrews, we're going to come to that at the end, that he is the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. Not only that, in Philippians we, re- we read, don't we, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is very, very, very engaged with us in our lives and in our faith. And it is true to say he will hold us fast. He won't let us go. There is Another side to that same truth, that if, if it wasn't true, Hebrews would not appear in our New Testament. And that is that there are pressures, there are real issues that we face in our life that challenge and would seek to undermine our faith. And it, it would be really good to know what they are and to engage with them so we know where they're coming from and how we can how we can stand against it. So while Jesus is the pioneer prayer to our faith, we also realise that actually these pressures are very, very real. So here's the first one. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn. It's actually on the screen. Hebrews 2, verse 1. The writer says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, that we do not drift away. So here's the first warning. Don't drift away. I'll tell you a funny story just to get you warmed up even more. All right? One of the commentaries that I've been reading as I've been studying Hebrews, I've got a, I've got a particular series I go to quite a bit, and it's, it was really interesting. He said that this word drift is a bit like um, losing something and you don't know you've lost it. And he gave the illustration of a ring on your finger. So you're wearing a ring and you go around and you just suddenly realise it's gone. It's drifted off your finger. And that kind of reminded me, and I was going to walk and I can't. I'll stay here. Uh, it, it reminded me of our honeymoon. 49 years ago, <clears throat> we were on our honeymoon, uh, just back now. Four days into the honeymoon, we were staying in a small Italian hotel uh, that had a swimming pool, and it was hot. So, uh, about mid-afternoon, we were by the pool, uh, just on lounges, and I'd been putting on some sun cream, which in those days was not good quality. I mean, it was really greasy and messy. 
And I just, you know, so I'm there. And I thought, I'll have a swim. Dived in the pool, swam a few lengths of the pool. And that was okay. Came back to the side of the pool, put my arms on, on the side of the pool to talk to Linda. And Linda said, where's the ring? And I said, what do you mean? She said, you've lost your wedding ring. And the ring had gone. So at this point, four days married, this is not a good thing. <laughs> so I'm out by the pool. Trying to look for the wedding ring. On the bottom of the pool. At which point, one or two people sitting around the pool said, what are you doing? I said, I've lost my wedding ring. And they all knew we were just married. It was so obvious. Do you know what I mean? So they said, that's terrible. So everyone got up from their, their lounges and they were standing right in the pool trying to find this wedding ring. Couldn't find it. The guy said, I've got a face mask. Put a face mask on. Got into the pool and was fortunate. He couldn't find it. Just could not find this wedding ring. Just awful. So I went to the reception desk and said to them, excuse me, um, I've lost my wedding ring in the pool. Uh, it's somewhere on the bottom of the pool. Um, if someone, when someone finds it and they're handed in, could you let me know, please? That'd be really good. And in his best Italian, he said, Sir, uh, tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock, we pull the plug on the pool, we empty the water, clean it and refill it. What do you mean? You pull the plug on the pool. He said, we empty it. It'll go down the plug into the sea. 7 o'clock in the morning. Tomorrow. It's all booked. Now I've got a problem. So six o'clock in the morning, next morning, I'm up, swimming things on, go to the, go to the pool, and I'm walking, I'm walking through the hotel reception, outside to the pool, and the sun has come up on the other side, and as I get to the pool, the gold wedding ring glistens, and I can see it. And very carefully, I get in the pool without disturbing it, duck down, get the wedding ring, put it on the finger, walk away, go back to bed. <laughs> the ring drifted and I didn't know. Got it? The point about this is you don't know. You don't understand. It doesn't register. The drifting is happening without me knowing anything about it. It's like a boat that loses its anchor loses its power and it's taken by the current and it just slowly drifts on its own and it's taken away. And we don't know about it. It's not objective rejection. No one's saying we're going to turn away our faith from following Jesus. It's not that direct. It's not dramatic. It's a result of neglect of a slow atrophy of faith and it happens over a length of time. And we're not even aware of it. I don't know if you've come across this book by Gordon MacDonald. It's called A Resilient Life. But in the book, it's a, it's a, if you haven't read it, it's a good book. You'd, you'd enjoy reading it. Well, I don't know if you'd enjoy it, but it's a good book to read. And, and here we go. He says this. They slowly enter their spiritual tank of yesterday's zeal and vision and now merely go through the motions of a fantasy faith. That's drift. That's drift. The motions of a fantasy faith. We think we are where we are, but we're not really because we've drifted. We've left Jesus out of it. And the antidote to drift 
is to pay careful attention to what we have heard, says the writer of Hebrews. That's the context. And what we hear is the message of the Son, the message of Jesus. He came to give us the message. That's why chapter 1 is all about Jesus. That's why chapter 2 starts with therefore. Therefore, because this is Jesus, we don't drift. We listen to what he's saying. And chapter 3, 1 says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And there's an engagement with the word here that is really important. <clears throat> now, I've just explain to you why we st- I was studying Hebrews. And when I came to this particular chapter and I was thinking about what drift was, I realized this is probably me. I identify with this more during this last few months and a couple of years than any of the others. And, and it's really significant. And I just began to realize that in, in some ways it had really affected me. And I'd, I'd kind of stopped reading the word like I, I did before, and as often as I did, and whatever. And I was just disengaging and drifting. So I thought, I need to do something about this. So here you are. If you identify with this whole issue of drifting, here's a thought for you. I took it for a month. I read the whole of Psalms and Proverbs. So on day one of the month, you read Psalm 1, 31, 61, 91, 121, and Proverbs 1. On day 2, Psalm 2, 32, 62, 92, 122, Proverbs 2. You get the idea, don't you? I don't need to carry on, do I, for 30 years, 30 days. Okay? And I didn't spend a lot of time. I didn't study the passages. I just read them quite slowly, but read them. And I had a notebook next to me and I made a note of verses that were significant for me as I was reading. I thought, oh, that's a great verse. Just made a note of verses. So I've got them at home. And I, can, I re-look at them at times. Why? I just needed to get back to listening. Because the thing about drifting is we stop listening. We stop hearing. And we don't even know we've done it. So to stop drifting takes intentionality. We need to make a decision. We first of all need to recognise we're drifting, then we need to decide to do something about it. And I suppose there's all kinds of ways you can do that, but that's one of them that helped me. Here's the second one. Chapter 3. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This This is really drastic. This is really difficult. This is a hard one. Notice the writer doesn't say he's saying it. He claims the authority of the Holy Spirit in saying this. So we really need to take this seriously. So he says, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he gives an illustration for us in the next few verses in in, in chapter 3 of the exodus 40 years in the Exodus. God had brought the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, put them into the desert, and what do they do? They grumble. They grumble about a lack of water, they grumble about a lack of food, they grumble about why aren't we back in Egypt? At least there we knew who we were and we were slaves, but at least we. And they just go on and on and on and on. And they say, you know, God says, listen, I've got the promised land for you. No, we don't want any of the promised land. No, no, no. So for 40 years, they attend funerals. 
A million funerals over 40 years. Only two people going to the promised land that ever left Egypt. Amazing. And he, and, and he gives the illustration of hardness of heart. So in verse 10, he says their hearts were led astray. This is a heart issue. Verse 12, he warns them not to have an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. This is not a drift. This is an actual turning away. I follow God. I walk with him. And now for some reason I've decided not to. And verse 13 talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Because I am deceived, I turn away. And I move from loving and serving God to being almost aggressive to him. And it can be triggered by a, a, a life event. Something can happen in our life whereby God does not come up to meet our expectation. He doesn't do what I want him to do to solve it. So I have an expectation of him. Please solve this. Why did you allow that to happen? What happened here? And I begin to have questions. Questions are not bad. Questions can be okay. That's not a problem. It's always just the right place for the answer. But if the deceitfulness of sin comes in, it can begin to turn me away. From the living God. That's what this is about. Chapter 3. Do not harden your hearts. I have a plan A for my life. And God's plan A is different to my plan A. So I'm not a happy bunny am I? The antidote. Interestingly enough in verse 13. The writer says is the Christian community. I find this fascinating. Because it says that the Christian community can encourage us and needs to encourage us to have a soft heart and a sensitive heart to our God. Don't we, yeah, we have time for a minute. Let me just take a second. Conscience and heart are quite similar in some ways biblically. So I'm encouraged to have a soft conscience toward God as I'm encouraged to have a soft heart toward him. And conscience is God quietly speaking to me. So he'll whisper and he'll say, I don't think you ought to do that. That's not a good thing to do. Why don't you do this instead? And I ignore it. So next time, he says, I don't think you ought to do that. I think you ought to do this. And I ignore it. Next time, he says... Coming back from the microphone. I don't think you ought to do that. Do this. And I'm becoming insensitive to God's leading. To God's speaking to me. And the Bible encouraged me not to do that. To say sensitive to him. In my conscience. In my heart. And a hard heart can be softened. If we cooperate with the Lord. This is a lovely book. Ezekiel 36 is a fantastic verse. I'll give you a new heart. And I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone. And give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees. Be careful to keep my laws. You'll be my people. And I will be your God. That's amazing. 
So if you feel that you are beginning to get a hard heart, that somehow you're not listening anymore to what God is saying, and it's not accidental, you're not drifted here, you're making decisions not to listen because of being felt let down by what God is saying to you. Make a decision. Get alongside God's people. And this is where God's people, we need to decide something here, guys. Because this is not talking about coming to church on a Sunday. I'm not talking about sitting here. This encourages nobody except me. I get really encouraged when I stand here and I watch you. You're great. But, it, but we're talking here about getting alongside each other and being an encouragement to each other to keep a soft heart to the Lord. Ask the questions. Ask the right questions to each other. Pray for each other. Work with each other. Because Hebrews 3.13 says that will help us to keep not hardening our hearts, but softening our hearts. Third one. We're getting there, don't worry. We're finished by T. Says he. Oh, there you go. Don't be content with an immature faith. This is Hebrews 5. The writer says we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. He is writing this whole letter not to new believers, but to those who came to faith some time ago. These are, these are older, quote-unquote, Christians. And he gives the illustration of diet in order to try and help us understand it. So he says, for example... <clears throat> That whilst we ought to be eating adult food, some of us are still eating baby food. And he says it's not right. Don't do that. Why don't you just grow up and, and get beyond elementary truths, which are the basic truths of the gospel? But we've stopped learning. We've stopped hearing. We've stopped seeking to know more. Now, be careful. I'm not talking here about some mysterious spiritual superiority for the initiated. This is not for the clique who've got it all together, put it together and all okay. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? Please remember that. It's not about getting a PhD in some obscure phrase in the Old Testament. That's not what this is about. Not at all. It's about holding firmly to the faith we profess. Hebrews 4.14 it's a growth in maturity that doesn't come automatically with age. Because you became a Christian when you were 14 and you're now 70 whatever, doesn't mean maturity spiritually. The two don't go together like that. Automatically. The theme of growth in maturity is a strong theme throughout the New Testament. Particularly, for example... You can see it in Colossians 2. Paul wrote about it in uh, Colossians 2, 6 and 7. In the Living Bible, it says this. And now, just as you trusted Christ to save you, trust him too for each day's problems. Live in vital union with him. Let your roots grow down into him, draw up nourishment from him, become strong and vigorous in the truth, go on growing in the Lord. That's it. That's what it's about. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at. That's what he wanted the church to be like. Not an immature group of people who only just kind of just were playing around with their faith 
but to grow in faith. Faith is a muscle. It needs to be used to develop. We need to get on with it. We need to continue to grow. It's a lifelong motivation. Here's the next one for you. Okay? Don't try to go it alone. This is uh, Hebrews 10. And it says this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together. As some are in the habit of doing. But encouraging one another. And all the more you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. That word unswerving has a particular meaning. It means you cannot bend it. It won't bend. It's absolutely stable. It's going in a direction and it won't be diverted. So hold unswervingly to the hope we profess means we don't allow our hope to be moved away, to be, to be somehow bent out of shape. It's about stability and not losing focus. But it's not, this is, again, not about church attendance on its own. It's much more proactive about being challenged to love one another, to live a life that pleases God. And he, he just is interesting that he, the writer highlights the fact that some people, according to the author, have abandoned this responsibility. They don't meet together and they rejected the opportunity of being encouraged by others to follow the Lord. How sad. How sad is that? There's a fantastic African proverb. Come across it. If you want to run fast, run alone. If you want to run far, run with others. And we're in this for life, guys. This is for life. And if we're going to last the course for life, we need to run with others and have others run with us. That's what it's about. To tell you another kind of little story. Keep you, keep you awake. Are you ready? So I, I'm going, I'm going to send a series of classes at the moment. I'm waiting for some medical treatment, you know. And as part of that, uh, it was just I go to a class. So I go to this class twice a week for an hour at a time. And uh, I thought I was quite fit. <laughs> what a joke. So I go to this class and they, they do, we have circuits. It's 50 years since I did circuits, seriously, let me tell you. And, and it's not good news. But what's interesting is, before, the class, before I went to the class, people used to send me videos and emails with these exercises to do. You know, like rising from a chair without your hands and all kind of things like that. You know what I mean? Did I do it? Well, I kind of played at it, just a little bit. I thought it was self-motivated, but I'm not really that self-motivated. And I found it really difficult. But I have to tell you, when you're in a class with 12 other people, and they're saying, so many of this, so many of this uh, position, so many of that position, that 12 positions around the room, and you've got to do it twice in an hour, you find muscles you never knew you had. <laughs> the next day, and the day after. In fact, I went on Wednesday, and this morning's the first day I can stand up straight. No, not quite. But just on your own. We're not meant to run on our own. I have a friend who uh, went to be with the Lord recently. I've known him for uh, 55 years. Got to know him really well, about 40, 
40, yeah, about 45 years ago, really well. And he went with the Lord, and I couldn't get to the funeral because there was some, I couldn't get there and back in time to do some other responsibilities I had. So I, I, I just began to reflect, just I took some time reflecting on his life, and then I wrote to his widow about this, and I was trying to think, what, what is there in this, what passage of scripture reflects his life? What was he like? And it's this, Philemon 4, uh, verse 7, it's up here on the screen. And he says this, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement. Because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. That's it. Got it? Do you understand? That's community. That's what he did for me. He, I just, he, just, he did that whenever I met him. And you just understand something here. That you cannot run this race long term for life on your own. You need other people. But we need other people who will take initiative to talk with us and share with us. And we share with them. It's a mutual encouragement. And, and it's done and it's done. One-to-one, small group, however you want to do it, but it's there, and it's really, really important. Next one. Here we go. Don't throw away your confidence. This is Hebrews 10 as well, but just later on in the chapter. So it says, don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Now, the context here for the people who were receiving the letter is one of persecution. And the writer says that they'd stood side by side with those who'd been publicly insulted and persecuted and had their property confiscated. And he said, and he makes this amazing statement, he said, theirs is a, a better and a lasting possession. And I think that's, that's really difficult. You've just lost everything. You've been ridiculed. They've been, you've been thrown out of your home. You've lost all your possessions. And the writers say you've got a better possession. You've got a, and it's a better lasting possession. Because that, that's what Claudius did. You realise this is written just after Claudius' persecution of the church in Rome. And what he did was he threw them out of their homes. So the writers write, they had. Some of these people had lost their homes. And they stood side by side with those who had, and those who hadn't stood side by side with those who had as well. And they were part of that. Sometimes life is hard. And it is unfair. And we suffer injustice. And the writer says, don't throw away your confidence. Literally, cast it aside. Why? And then he says, because Jesus is coming back. <laughs> Isn't that great? Things are going to be different. And he helps us to lift our eyes and look to the future. When Jesus will return, or we'll go to be with him, and it will be different. 
and possessions fade. Jesus doesn't. Because it's the interesting thing, having finished this little section about not throwing away your confidence, he moves into what we know now as the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And he goes through all these people who've walked by faith in their life. And the interesting thing is at the end of the chapter he says, and they never received what they promised in this life. So these, these men and women of faith that are mentioned by the writer of Hebrews, they never, they never saw it in this life. It wasn't here. And I think sometimes we can be just so focused on the now. And we can protect the now. And the writer says, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes up. There is a future. There is a hope. And there is a reward. Don't throw away your confidence when the going gets tough. When it's difficult. And I suppose the purpose of Hebrews 11 is to encourage us to live as men and women of faith. As the ones he's mentioned. Here's the last one. Don't stop running the race. This is Hebrews 12. This is what we had the reading for. Uh, And I've almost finished. I'm not starting another message. Here we go. Therefore, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. And suddenly, we're out of the hall of faith, and we're in the sports arena. And we are participants in a race. And we need to dress appropriately. Now, I do appreciate that Lycra doesn't go for everybody, and certainly not for me. But there are two things about dressing appropriately. One is, it doesn't trip you up, And the only is it doesn't slow you down. Those are the two things he mentions. That in this race, we we don't carry weight we don't need to carry. And we don't wear things or whatever. We don't kind of gain forward that will trip us up. We've looked at some of the things we've already done that will do that. And then there's the crowd, isn't there? And I love this. I love this. Because this is, in, in the arena, there were spectators the, the, the crowd of witnesses. And who are they? Well, if you just take a second and look, they're the Hebrews 11. They're the people from Hebrews 11. They've finished their race. They've got there. The future's theirs. They've got their reward. And they're standing and they're cheering us on. Not only that, but there's Adrian. He's my friend who died three weeks ago. And he's cheering me on. I think he still is. He did it in his life. Why shouldn't he do it right now? Do you know what I mean? And he's part of the witnesses and they're cheering us on. But, they, they, but what they're saying is don't, don't look at us. Look ahead. Look forward. It's really important because we're to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And here's an important thing. Listen, when you're running this race, this is not a competition. 
Because the race that God has set for me, I need to run. And it's not your race, my race. And the race God has marked out for you is your race and it's not my race. So there's no point here in me thinking about other people saying, well, look how well they're doing. Or look how poorly they're doing and I'm doing better. You know what I mean? This is not comparative. It's the race marked out for me. God has called me to race toward him with the race that he set me. And we look ahead. How do I know that? Because he says it in Hebrews 12. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look at him. Where's Jesus? He's on the finishing line. How do I know that? Because he's finished his race. How do I know that? Because verse 2 and 3 tell me he did. Doesn't it say that? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. This man, Jesus, ran his race as the son with the message. And he's at the end. And he's standing at the end of the finishing line. And I'm running toward it. And how do I know it's Jesus? Because when he holds his arms out, I see the nail prints. They're still there. Why? Because he finished well. And we need to finish well. We need to start well. That's easy. Believe me, that's easy. It's finishing well that's the difficulty. And we need to keep and press on. Consider him. Why? Because then we do not grow weary and lose heart. This is an amazing letter. It is an amazing letter. The centrality of Christ and the need for us to persevere. Read it. Just sit down one day and read it through. Just slowly, but read it. It is an amazing letter. It will point us and point you to Jesus. Be aware of the challenges to our faith. Keep Jesus centred in our lives. Run with perseverance because we have a wonderful hope and a wonderful future.